Hey, Pastor Josh here. Thanks so much for watching our videos. If you'd like more information about Legacy City Church, you can go to LegacyCityChurch.com. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell below. God bless you. We are in Matthew chapter 22 in our Bibles. Matthew chapter 22, if you want to turn there. And we are working through a series I've titled Jesus Worldview. And we only have about five, six chapters left in our study. We have been working through the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, systematically, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And if this is your first time tuning in with us, um, you should know we, we basically do this. We work through the scriptures verse by verse. Um, we're always going to open the Word of God each and every week to look at every single verse of the Bible. And we chose the book of Matthew, or I chose the book of Matthew, because it is the most comprehensive of the four Gospels. The four Gospels are simply this. They're the stories of Jesus told from four different perspectives, four different uh, men who were there in his time watching him closely. The book of Acts, the book right after the four Gospels, is the story of the church. And it really is the, the birth of the church of Jesus Christ after his resurrection. So you read through the book of Acts and you get to see all that was taking place, the, the bringing forth of the church. The rest of the book of the New Testament or books of the New Testament are letters that have been written to different churches in the New Testament time or 2,000 years ago when the church was brought forth. This is where we find ourselves today in Matthew chapter 22. And the title of the message today, if you're taking notes, is Buried in the Details. Buried in the Details is a sermon number 87 through the book of Matthew. Heard of a story. Maybe you heard of this one, too. One Sunday, a pastor told his congregation that the church needed some extra funds, and he asked the people to prayerfully consider giving a little extra in the offering plate. And he said that whoever gave the most would be able to pick out three hymns on that Sunday morning, three hymns. And after the offering plates were passed, the pastor glanced down and noticed that someone had placed $1,000 in the offering bin. He was so excited that he immediately shared his joy with the congregation. He said he'd like to personally thank the person who placed that money in the plate. And there sat in the back a little old lady named Rosie. All the way in the back, she shyly raised her hand. The pastor asked her to come to the front. She slowly made her way to the pastor. He told her how wonderful it was that she gave so much in Thanksgiving. He asked her to pick out her three hymns for the morning song. Her eyes brightened up as she looked over the congregation, and she pointed out and said, I'll take him and him and him. Come on. Lighten up. Happy New Year. Buried in the details. You know, we got this giant problem on earth that we have not been able to figure out. And uh, it's one that people are trying to figure out, for sure. Even science is trying to figure this out. But we have this problem called death. We have this problem, this statistic, that one out of every one person will die. No one gets away from it. Death respects nobody. It literally comes at all of us, and we haven't been able to hurdle this or figure it out. And even the smartest or the richest or the greatest of status, the most powerful, cannot seem to get away from it. And 
there is a resolution to this problem. And it's very interesting that the very central focus of Christianity is the answer to this problem. It is the resurrection. The resurrection is the center point of all of Christianity. If you want to disprove the Christian faith, if you want to destroy it, if you want to tear it down, all you have to do is tear down this one point. If you tear down the resurrection and you can disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then the Christian faith has no door or no hinge to hang its door on. It really is stuck. Because then Jesus really actually just died. He never rose from the dead, and he can't promise resurrection or heaven to his people. And he actually said, if you destroy this body, I will raise it up in three days. And this would prove him to also be a liar if he doesn't follow through with that. They asked him, how do we know the things you say are true? He says, destroy this body, and I'll raise it up. That's how you'll know everything I said was true. So everything he said which is where the apostles got all of, what all of what they said, all hinged upon what Jesus said. All of the prophets of old were looking towards Messiah, what he will say, what he will do. So really, the entire faith hinges upon the Lord Jesus and what he has said, and he says, all that I have said hinges upon the resurrection. And if the resurrection is torn down, then the whole faith is torn down. Now, Jesus today in the text before us is challenged about the resurrection specifically. And we actually see um, in our text something else pointed out, a topic brought up that is a rare topic, not discussed, but that's not actually the answer to the point of the text. The answer to the point of this text will be the resurrection. Is it real? What if it is? And what are the implications if it is real. We are in Matthew chapter 22 in our Bibles. We're going to stand for the reading of God's word, if you would. We always stand for the reading of God's word to pay honor to him and to remember whose word we are reading. Not my words. My words can do very little for you. God's word will actually change you forever. And his word will stand forever and ever. It has the ability to discern the heart, the soul, and the mind. We are, we are thankful for these stories and the Word of God in our hands. I love, I love a Bible with pages. Mm, just love that. Pages and ink and leather. I just love it. I'd encourage you. I know it's handy to have the phone and the tablets and all that. I have those too. I've got one right here. I've got both of them right here on the pulpit. But man, there's nothing like a nice Bible and having one that is your own and maybe you underline it a couple times in and you highlight things. Nothing like it. Reading ink. Uh, we invest in all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, I'd encourage you uh, to invest in a good Bible. This is the Legacy Standard Version. Look at verse 23. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and asked him a question. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dying, ha having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up a seed for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no seed, he left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third and down to the seventh, and at last the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her married her. 
But Jesus answered and said to him, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word again today. And we pray, Lord, that you would take this ancient text and that you would import it into today. Right now, in our culture, what we're living through, what we're working through in our lives individually today, pray that you would open our eyes and ears to see your truth again, draw us close to you in relationship with you. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. We are still in the middle of Passion Week in our story. Remember, the Lord rode into Jerusalem on a donkey as the people proclaimed him as King and Messiah on Sunday, Palm Sunday. And as his first act of Messiah, he walks into the temple. He gets off the donkey. He walks into the temple and he clears out the den of thieves, the money changers. He condemns the temple. The next day, he curses a fig tree and it withers and dies, a picture of fruitless Israel, his people. And the Lord condemns the works of the religious leaders and their empty shell of religion. And then we saw the Lord Jesus tell two parables. Do you remember? The first was about the big picture and history of salvation, how the nation of Israel has rejected the prophets of old. And the second was a similar parable about salvation shown through a wedding feast, the giant party that the whole earth is invited to, which few choose to show up. We see the religious leaders trying to challenge Jesus in the week, the Passion Week, as he is walking towards the cross. He's about to be crucified this week. And we see these religious leaders trying to trip him up and entrap him because they wanted him dead. He was undermining all of their religious establishment and legacy. And last week, it was the Pharisees with their disciples and the Herodians. Remember, they teamed up. They were enemies. They teamed up to come against Jesus. To take him on this week, it's the Sadducees versus Jesus. Saturday night, 7 p.m., pay-per-view. Three easy payments of $39.95. No. But the Sadducees bring up the question of the resurrection, trying to entrap him, trying to disprove him. Verse 23, take a look at your text. On that day, some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and asked him a question. The Sadducees, as the text says, did not believe in the resu resurrection, and that is why they are sad, you see. Dad jokes, come on. But you would be interested to know that they were actually Bible guys. The Sadducees were Bible guys. They actually adhered to Scripture alone. They held to sola scriptura, scripture alone. They did not use rabbinical teachings or exterior books outside of the Bible as the Pharisees did. These guys were Bible guys, scripture purists as we are. The problem was they didn't know God. Can you imagine that? A group of guys who held to the Bible but missed the whole point of it. 
Do you know it exists in this day as well? People can say they believe the Bible alone, Scripture alone, but they don't read it, study it, or understand it. And consequently, they don't understand or know God. I think we would be astonished to see if we just stood on the boulevard here in Ventura, right here in Laurel Canyon, Ventura, on the corner, and maybe just asked every single person who walked by, have you read through the Bible? Just a simple question. Have you ever read through the Bible? No. Nope, nope, nope. I wonder how many people we would go through before we would find one person who has read through the entire Bible. Now, not you, Legacy City Church. I know if you wrap the corner here going to the farmer's market, we would, we would have that summed up in just five people, no doubt. Wink, wink, nod, nod. But you see, very few, they have lots of opinions about it, but no one has actually read it. Very interesting. These guys said they believed it, but they did not understand it. And consequently, they don't understand or know God. And the Sadducees were also the richest religious leaders in the land. They were wealthy. They aligned themselves with the priestly aristocracy and other men of wealth and influence in the city. So these guys were taken care of. And they thought they were the elites. They thought they knew more than anybody. They thought they were the purest. They thought they were the wealthiest and most powerful amongst the religious. And they no doubt had got together and talked through a plan as to how they could trip up that Jesus, that Yeshua, that guy claiming to be the Son of God, the Messiah, and trying to disprove us in our belief, disbelief of the resurrection, trying to make us look like fools. And they wanted to discredit him and all of his teachings, and so they got together and formed a plan. We don't know if they fabricated this question that they are about to ask the week prior or the week of, the week they talked to Jesus? Or is this a standing question in their circles of which their minds have fully disproven the resurrection biblically? It's kind of like common knowledge amongst the Sadducees that this is the argument they use to crush the resurrection anytime it's brought up in the land. They had an airtight case and a biblical one that they could use. And truly a philosophical one as to why the resurrection cannot exist. And they were sure of this. So they would challenge the Lord Jesus to crush him in front of the crowds. The crowds are there. They're like, let's go get them. We're going to drop the bomb on them. We're going to do a public debate, debate in front of everybody. Get the microphones get up. Get the speaker set up. Put up the easy ups and the signs. We're doing this in front of everybody. We're going to get them. Verse 24, they say, look at your text, teacher, teacher, te teacher, we, we have a question. The crowd looks over. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up a seed for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no seed, he left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third down to the seventh. And the last of all, the woman died in the resurrection, the question. Therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? Jesus. For they all married her. Notice the Sadducees start off their question with 
scripture. They quote scripture. A good premise for an argument. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, they quote. And here it is. If two brothers are living together on the same property and one of them dies without a son, his widow may not be married to anyone from outside the family. Instead, her husband's brother should marry her and have intercourse with her to fulfill the duties of a brother-in-law the first son she bears to him will be considered the son of the dead brother so that his name will not be forgotten in israel so this was the law in their society to actually protect the woman and the children allow me to explain because if her husband died in those days, they would have no way to provide, and they would be out on the street. She would be put in a very difficult situation, similar to single moms in this day and age, but far worse, because there is no way for the society to uphold and take care of that woman if her husband dies. So the law of Moses, Moses comes in and says, well, um, they're close to the family. They, they know each other clearly. This is going to be the best option. He will take care of her the best. He will do this the best for no man in that society would end up taking on another woman and her family um, outside of the family a single guy isn't going to do that either he's looking to start his own family and his own name it was very it was the way that it was back then so the brother of the husband who dies was obligated to take on the family and help the woman and her kids. And he would take her as a wife and provide for her and produce her a son to carry on the name of their family, which name is everything in that day and age. The following verses in Deuteronomy 25 says as the brother refuses to take her on, he will be disgraced in that society. So the law of Moses was serious about women, moms, wives, and children being taken care of. No single moms in that society, not one. And if we have widows in our church, we are obligated by the New Testament to help and take care of widows and orphans in our church. Mandatory. You find out a woman is widowed, you are, you are obligated to help her and take care of her. Make sure her rent is taken care of. Make sure her, she has groceries in the fridge. Make sure she is able to get up and get moving forward. We're not just to sit back like the rest of the world and do nothing. Well, the Sadducees quote this text from the Torah, which is what they believe to be the Bible, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is the Bible or the law of Moses. Then they add a philosophical argument to the scripture. What if the brother who married the widow dies as well, and then his brother marries her, and then the third guy dies, and then his brother marries her, and the fourth guy dies, and then uh, his brother marries her, and the fifth guy dies, and all the way to the seventh guy. What happens seven times she will have seven husbands all dead and when she goes to heaven one day who will be her husband and they think they got him so jesus who will be her husband she married seven on earth and when she gets to heaven i guess she has seven husbands in heaven polygamy in heaven how is this possible this is how they are disproving the resurrection they're saying see if this scenario happens which is possible God would not resurrect all of these men and this woman be connected to all of them for eternity. So there must not be a resurrection after death. They all die and she dies and that's it. That's their argument. Again, this was something they thought was airtight. 
The scenario can't be worked out with a resurrection in mind. Thus, the scriptures don't teach a resurrection. It's a philosophical argument. People try to do this with questions about God all the time, like, is God all-powerful? You say, yes. Well, then, can he make a rock so big that he can't lift it if he's all-powerful? Because they think they can trap you in a philosophical stacking of words, then I guess God must not exist. Clever, but not helpful. Even the evolutionist has to sit in a theory when it comes to macroevolution. No one knows how the Big Bang brought forth one single-celled organism, which magically evolves into not only a fully living, breathing creature, but it mutates billions of times to create flies, fish, cows, monkeys, tigers, trees, plants, fruits, and vegetables, human language, philosophy, all from one single cell. It magically grows and mutates over billions of years. And this is crazy talk. We have never seen a fly turn into a whale. Came from the same cell, really, from an explosion billions of years ago. Microevolution, I have no problem with. No problem. Variation within a species, but macro, a tree which produces fruit, and, a, and, and the deer who eats that food produces babies, evolve from the same place, it makes no sense. We have to break down the exact steps, and no one actually knows. They just add the phrase, well, it took billions of years, don't you know? Oh, you believe that? I don't have that much faith. It's easier for me to believe that there is a God who made and designed this universe and planet. There is a mind behind all of this, and each species was made by him, and they evolve within their kind, cats to lions. That makes sense. A microevolution amongst species and kind. Same family, easy to understand. No cat is ever going to evolve to become a shark. No matter how many years, billions of years it's given, I'm sorry, it's not there. I have a buddy who was a scientist, or who is a scientist, a physicist. He got his doctorate at 24 years old. Brilliant. And we had so many talks about these things. He is a Christian, and he is still puzzled how so many of his friends and colleagues and professors choose not to discuss or talk through the details of intelligent design and there being a creator or the problems with evolution and theory that has been made known as fact in public schools when they know it is not a fact. It is still sits in a theory category. But it has been told to all of the nation, oh, th this is not even discussed. What are you even doing discussing this? This is clearly a fact amongst all brilliant people on the planet. No, no, it is still a theory and one that we do not see proven. And that is the biggest problem. Philosophy, and even running with it, is, I think, important to build out cases and to study them. But man, we have got to get down to the real facts. We need to outline systematically how this happened. How did the cell go from here to here to here to here to here? And where are the branches? How did we get from that place to that place? I have asked the most brilliant minds, and even my buddy here asked the most brilliant minds, and they don't seem to give them an answer either. So what is going on here?
I bring all that up because we, as Christians, need to be students of the Word of God. We must be students of society. We must not check our brains at the door. We must know why we believe what we believe. And when we are challenged on those things, let's sit down and have a cup of joe. What do you say? Let's talk it out. I want to hear the clear presentation of these truths. And if we do not do that, we will find ourselves in a position seeing a society that will not worship God, has no focus on God, because they think it's some bogus, crazy myth worshiping some spaghetti monster in the sky, they say. 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I'm very thankful I got the opportunity to be a college pastor through my early 20s, and I had hundreds. It grew to five or 600 kids, and we had all these kids asking the craziest questions. So we went into their colleges, and we went into their schools, and went into their classrooms, and we talked with their professors, and we debated in the middle of all these schools. And we were going to stand on truth and be challenged at the highest level and not have the answers, or we were going to study and figure it out so that we could know why we believe what we believe. We could know for ourselves. And I'm telling you, you should take time to do this for yourself. Oftentimes, we won't engage in conversation because we don't know. And we've got to get past that. Jesus did not ever take a step back. Someone asked a question, he took a step forward every single time. And if we are his followers, how should we be taking steps? Backwards in this society or forwards on every single front? I hope that you would do so in every single field. If you're in academia, please take steps forward. If you're in the medical field, please take steps forward. If you're in the arts, please take steps forward. If you're in, I don't know, sports entertainment, please take steps forward. If you're in business, please take steps forward. If you're teaching, raising kids, working at the grocery store, wherever it is, I pray and hope that we would start taking steps forward and having discussions, start talking with people. I dare you. Man. I was at this wedding, and I'll never forget, I sat down at the table, me and my wife there, and there's this guy here, and I was, I was the guy who did the wedding ceremony, and so all of a sudden, he just comes at me with straight-up gnarly questions, just, just, just starts everything, just was, had no hesitation, was going to throw the pastor under the bus because we're in L.A., kind of uh, passively, aggressively mock me at the table and thought I wasn't going to approach him. So I just started talking directly to him in front of everybody, right there at the table, and I just went after him. I said, these are fantastic questions. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. And, uh, and we dialogued for about 15, 20 minutes there. And he thought, he thought he had cracked the code on Christianity and that he was not going to get any type of response. He just kept throwing these questions. I said, here you go. Here you go. Here you go. We start answering. And then he says, well, how about this? 
How about me and you sit down and let's work through the New Testament together and look at every single detail to see if if these things are true because I have read through it and I know that it's I know what it says and it doesn't say that. I said, "Oh, I would love to do that with you." <laughs> he was shocked. Because I think every pastor before that thought there's no way I'm going to sit down with this guy and work through the scriptures because he's going to find something that shows that we're wrong. I said, I couldn't wait, man. I'm buying coffee every single time. I will, let's go through the first book of Matthew. You, the, the first chapter of the first book, you, you, it will be over. <laughs> let's do it. We must. I'm so thankful for that time that I got to be challenged in the deepest of my faith I ever had been. Again, from historically, scientifically, philosophically, linguistically, even with the languages, the geography, the maps, all of the different things regarding the Bible, whether or not it's true, the resurrection, all of these things. Is there a God? Really, from step one to step 100, we got to analyze a lot of it, and it was so fruitful. But it equipped me for that time and I think even more so for such a time as this, we have been so scared to speak up in this society, but what I've been seeing more and more that those who just speak up at the table, all of a sudden, just because somebody has a loud voice doesn't mean they're using logic and reason. And as soon as you start speaking up, they start retreating. You know what happened at the end of that night? I tried to get that guy's number to go meet with him for coffee, but he went on the dance floor and he never came back. I'm serious. I literally look at my life. I'm like, I guess he's not coming back. Like, I'm, we're waiting at 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. He's like not coming back. I'm like, well, we got to get out of here. Oh, well. And that was it. These guys think they have got Jesus trapped in the resurrection with this scenario of the widow marrying seven men, this philosophical argument, entering heaven. And look what he does. Watch Jesus. Watch, he steps right into him. It's like, you guys, you guys want it? Okay. Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken. Not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. He says, I'm sorry, guys, you don't even know the Bible. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teachings. Jesus just did an ancient mic drop. You can't see it on the surface, but look closely at the text. First, he challenges them as Bible guys. He says, you misunderstood the scriptures and the power of God. I thought you guys were Bible guys. I'm sure they are already offended at the highest level because they think they are the purest Bible guys in the land. And he gives two reasons. Number one, verse 30, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given to marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So this is very interesting here in the text. In heaven, these seven men and women are not given to marriage because there is no marriage, Jesus says to him. He's like, don't you guys know there is no marriage in heaven? How did you not know this? I thought you were Bible guys. And he says, <clears throat> there is no marriage in heaven for we become like angels. 
Notice it does not say we become angels. You don't become a fat baby and grow wings and start flying around. Okay, no. You don't become an angel. We become like angels. Well, what are angels? They're ministering spirits who serve God day and night and are, they are single. They are not married. While you are single, brothers and sisters, on this earth, you can be like the angels, serving God day and night. Interesting. Interesting. Never saw that before. Be like the angels. That sounds like a great book for singleness. Be like the angels, serving God day and night. Why wouldn't there be marriage in heaven? Well, because it's not necessary or needed in populating the earth and building a coherent society that functions well with family and building the next generation. Uh, it's not necessary anymore because notice millions of people have now entered into the presence of God. There is no need to be populating uh, for eternity anymore unless God decides. And second, there is no need to be holding society together because it is held together by him. Will it be like Adam and Eve again? Yes, I believe so, with no marriage certificate needed. I don't think we, we, uh, I don't think we will know each other less. I think I will know my wife, Katie. I think I'll know her and my kids more than ever in heaven, and we won't need a covenant with each other and with God called marriage, for we will be together forever, and nothing will separate or break that. And God, we will be with him forever and ever, and there will, the covenant has already been made. Covenants won't be needed except for the one God has already declared to everyone in eternity. Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud shout from the throne room of heaven. Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. All these things are gone forever, and we are now with God forever. There is one covenant that is made. It is the entire marriage of the church in God. God's people in him in eternity forever. And the one sitting on the throat said, look, I am making everything new including marriage i like that he's making it new and better and nothing will separate our covenant with god and with one another even in marriage jesus says there what god is what god has brought together let no one separate now doesn't he but we do see separation here in our society. We see broken people who sometimes can't make it because of all kinds of problems. But in heaven, there will be no problems. There will be no things like this. There will be no separation, and God will hold us together for eternity. So Jesus says, what are you guys even talking about? It's a completely new thing in heaven. Marriage isn't even there. So the fact that you brought that up about a woman who married seven on earth has to figure out marriage in heaven, it's not even a part of the context. There's no marriage in heaven except for with God. Then he says, verse 31, but regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. Watch this. Jesus quotes the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Now watch this. 
This is something these Sadducees have been quoting since they were boys. Every Jewish boy knows and has heard this scripture thousands of times. I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their forefathers. Every Jew knows this. He quotes to them Exodus 3, 6, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Jesus is saying and quoting to them the Jewish John 3.16, how did you miss this? You Bible guys, it's so clear. Moses is hearing from God about his spiritual fathers who have died and lived in the past, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God says to Moses, I am their God. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob right now in the present. Not that I was the God of Abraham. Not that I was the God of Isaac. Not that I was the God of Jacob while they were alive on earth and now they're dead and gone. I am their God right now in heaven and they are alive and well resurrected. Mic drop. I am their God right now. Buried in the details. Buried in the details of Scripture. The Scripture that they know more than any other, that they have read thousands of times, these Sadducees miss the words, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob right now. And they have been fighting this truth of the resurrection. They have been fighting it off and debating it all of their lives. And Jesus turns their world upside down by quoting them their John 3.16. And the lights turn on in that moment. And they're looking at each other like, wait, what? That's right. He's referring to them in the present as if they're in heaven with him right now, resurrected. How did we miss this? I love this. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teachings. I love that Jesus goes for the elementary point. He takes the most basic and just quotes it to them in their mind. It's just like, boom. Like he sees the crack. This is so amazing. And the Sadducees went away saved. They may have been astonished, but they got angry, and they tried to figure out how to kill him all the more. Because he proved him wrong. Buried in the details is the resurrection, and the most important of all of our doctrines in Christianity. Without the resurrection, there is no hope. Without the resurrection, there is no life beyond death. Without the resurrection, there is no hope here today now. I want to give you three points as we close. I'm actually just going to rattle off the points, okay? You can write them down if you want. I'll talk about them just briefly. The resurrection is the proof of, proof of Christianity, number one. Just as I said earlier, the resurrection proves that everything Jesus said and did was true. Um, if I said a bunch of crazy things like, I'm the son of God. I can forgive people's sins. Uh, I was virgin born. Uh, 
kill me, and I will rise from the dead in three days. Okay. I am the Messiah. Follow me. Everybody, you're a lunatic. Uh, throw him in the loony bin. But then what if I said, hey, don't worry. I'm actually going to prove all the things I say to be true by raising from the dead. Come to my funeral in a couple days. And then if I rose from the dead, you might just stand back and say, truly, what he said was true. The resurrection is what birthed forth the church. Thousands upon thousands believed because of the resurrection. Number two, the resurrection brings eternal life. Watch this. It's not only our proof, but it brings eternal life for us. We will not be reincarnated. It challenges all these ideas. We will not just die and cease to exist. We will be resurrected into the next life. And Jesus has said it very, very clearly. The resurrection brings eternal life. And the resurrection is the good news. It's bad news for the evil, for the wicked. But it's good news for the believer. For we will be resurrected into new life. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, he will live. Whoever believes in Jesus, though he dies, will actually live in heaven forever with God. And this is a future hope. When people die, we all post online, rest in peace, you know, hope you're well, see on the other side, all these things. But do we really believe that? Or is that just something to make people kind of feel good for a bit? You see, my younger brother, Jake, he passed away eight years ago. We were at the beginning of our church plant. My mother died when I was six. I have people that have gone on into eternity that I hope to see and hope to meet. I need that to be true. I need it to be real. And the resurrection brings peace to my life. Because though my brother has passed, I know I'll see him again. And I can say things like this, I'll see you soon. The resurrection brings eternal life, which we all want to live forever. Even Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and all these guys are trying to figure out ways. They want to live forever too. Jesus found the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father except through him. Finally, the resurrection brings the good life now. The good life right now, John 10, 10, Jesus says the thief, the enemy, Satan, the devil, who clearly runs around in this city, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that they may have life and that abundantly. Jesus rose from the dead so that you would be raised to life right now, today. And there are many of you who have experienced this resurrection in your life. You remember you were running from God. You remember the difference of not being with God, not being raised to life, but living away from God. And you have been resurrected into newness of life. And now you're living completely differently in a new light, following Christ with all of your life. Once I was dead, now I'm alive. Once I just saw him black and white, now I see in color. Keith Green says it this way. He says, it's like waking up from the longest dream. How real it all seemed until your love broke through. I was lost in a fantasy until your love broke through. I love this. The resurrection raises us to the good life right now. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life right now. 
and walking with him in this life, allowing him to bring you to life, causes the scales to fall off your eyes, the things blinding you. And you see for the first time, you smell for the first time, you understand what God is up to for the first time. Your sins are forgiven. You don't carry those burdens anymore. You know where you're going when you die. You're going to heaven. Your eternity is secure. You have a Father in heaven who loves you. You have a God who wants to carry you through life and bless you and serve you and love you. He just wants you to walk with him. That's what this whole thing is all about. He's created the earth, and this place is a playground for us to enjoy him, to walk with him, and just get on and loving and enjoying the people around us. And sadly, many don't figure this out. But I believe God maybe has brought you here today to hear about the resurrection, that maybe you would be raised to life right now. And maybe that that baptism last week was the visual that you needed to see this is what it looks like to be raised from death to life. It's just the beginning. Let's pray and turn to the Lord and see what he might do. Amen? Father, we, we lower ourselves to you now. We, we bow our heads to you now. And Father, I ask that you would please answer the questions of these here in the crowd, answer their hearts, questions, and desires. Would you solve some of these riddles in their minds? And I pray that they would call upon you as the true and living God to be saved from their sins, to be forgiven of all they, all they have done, to be lifted of the burdens of hurting other people and hurting you ultimately. And I pray, God, that you would reach your hand down from heaven and bless them and forgive them. And that you would grant them the gift of heaven. They would call upon you to be saved. They would confess that Jesus is Lord and Savior of their life. And choose to walk with him and follow him. And Lord, I pray that you would anchor your people, the church, into you more and more. I pray, Father, for a boldness in us that we would take steps forward in discussion, in the conversation of this culture, that we would see more come close to you, they'd be set free from all of the vices destroying us and tearing us down in this society. God, I pray that we would call upon you, that you'd save us, bring us peace and rest and love, truth, all the things that we need, clarity. Father, I pray that you would complete the work that you have started and that all those who are calling upon you to be saved would be so in this moment. Oh God, hear their prayer. Save now. We lift our lives into your hands. We do it in Jesus' name. Amen.